AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for May 17th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. We're joined today online by Jim Clausing. Jim, how's it going? Going well. How's things out there? Oh, it's all right. A little gray, but we're going to make do. Um, and we're also joined by Stan Nuraloff here on the couch. How's it going, Stan? Pretty well. How are you? Pretty good. Anything exciting happening with you recently? Well, there's always something exciting happening with me. All right. I just got back from business trips and... Uh, getting to know my way back around analysis. All right, I'm sure it'll be uh, second nature to you. So we'll start off today with Jim. Jim, looks like there's a new Flash Zero Day. Care to, care to tell us all about it? This one is getting a little bit of attention here. On, on the 8th of May, FireEye detected an attack that was actively exploiting a new vulnerability, a zero day vulnerability in the Adobe Flash player. And within four days, Adobe released a new patch for it. The particular exploit that FireEye detected was actually a flash exploit embedded inside an Office document, but but that piece of, you know, it wasn't necessary to to use an Office document to exploit the flash. It could have been done, you know, via web page or whatever. It looks like it was a pretty standard Buffer overflow, out-of-bound read vulnerability within Flash. Nothing particularly new about that. So if you are still using Adobe's Flash Player, make sure that you are getting updates applied in a timely fashion. I think it was within days of this vulnerability coming out, there was another notice that Google in Chrome was going to be blocking Flash content except from, you know, specific sites. I, I don't remember the details on that, but if you're using Flash Player, make sure that you're keeping it up to date. And, you know, with a lot of sites trying to move away from Flash content altogether toward HTML5, maybe in the not-too-distant future we won't be hearing about Flash vulnerabilities anymore. One can only hope. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's it's interesting that Flash has has lived so long. I mean, I realize that you know legacy technology never truly dies, but um, I feel like there's a lot of things these days that are sort of sounding the death knell for for Flash, including what you were saying about about Google making those decisions to block it by default. I think at this point, most folks don't need to use it, and I would almost recommend people uninstall Flash at this point. What do you think, Stan? Yeah, it's a very complicated file format that they have, so I could see the why they have so many bugs. Um, I definitely think with the move to HTML5, like you say, it's going to go away and things like that, but I have a feeling we're going to he keep hearing about it for a little while longer here. And actually, Stan, we're going to go over to you next. Uh, this is an interesting one in terms of... Uh Getting infected in places you'd expect to be infected, but not necessarily on the kind of infections you'd expect, <laughs> if that makes any sense. I'll let you clear that up for me. Uh, well, I was reading this uh, pretty interesting article in Ars Technica 
about some medical equipment that during a procedure with a patient had to be rebooted because it became unresponsive. Mm -hmm. And when they did the root cause analysis, it turns out that antivirus that they had running uh, wasn't configured correctly. So it was said to scan every hour and just during this, in fact, you know, when they were doing this procedure, I guess it was doing the scanning mm -hmm. and it interfered with them to be able to monitor the um, vital signs of the patient. Mm. Uh, but the patient was okay, so that's good. They were able to keep him sedated for the five minutes it took to reboot the appliance. Um, when the vendor did the analysis, you know, they determined that you shouldn't be scanning all types of files with the AV. And in general, some people might be like, well, why would you be running antivirus on this medical equipment? There's, it's kind of like this catch-22 type situation because a lot of those things are almost like mandated, you know, to be secured and those are computing devices and some of them are really running old operating systems like mm -hmm. Windows XP and things like that. They're usually not connected to the network but sometimes they are connected to the network. I guess it depends on the hospital and how far along they are with the electronic records management thing. Mm -hmm. There's all these kinds of things and you just have to configure the AV correctly, I guess, when you're setting up these things so it's not scanning the big images or, or the patient data or stuff like that. It should only be really scanning the file types that are probably most likely to be vulnerable to the problem. And like you said, this is interesting because you don't really expect to get a virus on a computer mm -hmm. when you're at the hospital, maybe another person when you're at the hospital, but not from a computer. Uh, this one seems to have quoted from the antivirus. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I, 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 thought, I think about this sort of problem a lot where you've got two different needs that are competing. You've got the needs of the person on the operating table who has a life to be prepared, and then you've also got the needs of IT, which clearly are not as important, but you know, if, if things are scheduled to automatically happen, they will interfere with each other. And it's a little bit of a challenge too, because you know, you think about the hospital setting and probably, is there really a good time to do the AV scan? Because it's probably a 24 by seven type operation. Good point. Things like that. And then you might think, well, do they really need to be doing the AV scans all the time if it's not connected or stuff like that? But it, like I said, it probably depends on the hospital and on the network and exactly what is connected and probably the administrators of that network have to like customize how that scan is happening if it needs to happen and may be able to turn it down or not. It's actually, if you read the article, make sure to read the comments section. Okay. Uh, there's some really interesting comments from people, and one refers even to an uh, XKCD comic uh, about a similar topic in a different industry, which I thought was very entertaining. So definitely, uh, once you read the article, the XKCD reference is a bonus. Cool. No, I'm a big fan of XKCD myself. Yeah, well, this is another one of those cases where these devices, if they need to be networked, need to be on an isolated network. Just like when we, you know, a few weeks back on the show when we were talking about the industrial control systems, the SCADA systems, systems that are dealing directly with human beings, you know, whether they're monitoring or, you know, we've talked in the past about machines that are, you know, doing radiation treatment or whatever, or, or administering drugs, you know, those need a different type of tighter controls and really need to be isolated. These shouldn't be, you know, machines that have, that you can reach from the internet or even from the rest of the 
the hospital network. They, they really need to be isolated. That's a good point. I keep thinking about the fact that these are fairly fixed in purpose, these machines. You know, they don't, they're not meant to do things like web browsing or playing games. I mean, they're kind of like point of sale systems in that you'll see that they do one or two things very well and they're not supposed to be branching out, but you'll see people using them for multiple things as well. I'm not sure that people are playing, you know, Minesweeper on your, your heart rate monitors, but it seems like these are the kinds of systems you could definitely spend some time and harden or do something like application whitelisting or severely restrict the things they actually can do. I mean, even running a full Windows operating system may be overkill for a system like this. I understand why people might design it that way because it's easier if you're already a Windows developer to develop another application on top of it. Having that extra functionality adds complexity and I think we talked on the show before about adding complexity to a system typically does not make it any more secure. Actually, you brought up a good point about application whitelisting. This would probably be a perfect situation where instead of maybe running AV, you should be running application whitelisting because mm -hmm. I think one of the certifications they have to pass is not introducing changes to the system mm -hmm. and that the best way to catch things like that is probably through application whitelisting. So it'll probably be a good solution uh, instead of AV in a situation like this. All right, thanks a lot. Let's turn to me for a second. I uh, read a really cool article from Krebs on Security who consistently puts out really great work. Uh, he was investigating an interesting botnet with a guy named Noah Dunker of Risk Analytics. And they discovered this botnet and they have the name Dark Cloud for it, which anytime somebody uses the dark and cloud and it feels like marketing buzzwords, it, it itches in the back of my brain. But they, they admit it's, it's just a name. But it is pretty close to what they're describing here. It turns out they've got a, there's a botnet and it's infecting a number of you know, regular home PCs, the same kind of garden variety stuff that you would see out in the wild. But someone has turned it into effectively a cloud service for hosting several Carter forums, people who are you know, selling credit card numbers and CVVs online to do fraud. And they've got DNS set up to round robin it every three minutes or so to point to a new infected PC. Now, I, I can't, can't imagine that the, the speed of any one of these PCs, this is probably like grandma's 10-year-old XP box sitting in, in the back somewhere, but it's very resilient, and it means that it takes, it's very hard to take down the forum if it's hosted on thousands of machines. Uh, so it turns out some bots are being used for hosting, some are involved in ransomware, some are even DNS servers, which is a pretty sophisticated operation. So Krebs posted a script for how he was able to check the, the domains over and over, over time, and when the TTL expires on that, you know, try the next one and build out a list, and then take that list of IPs and turn it into a list of the domains that are part of the botnet, which is cool. And he, he's made this available on the site, so anybody who wants to go dig into it can kind of benefit from the research. So all in all, I thought a pretty interesting read. Yeah, it sounds like very interesting research. I'm definitely going to check it out. Um, wow, so like a cloud network, distributed, but malicious. But malicious. So, <laughs> wow. It actually, rep I think it represents like a, something that I thought might come eventually. It's a little scary because that means that it's going to make some takedown activities harder. Like, let's say they're hosting, like you said, ransomware and other things. Mm -hmm. It's going to make taking down some of those malicious websites a little bit harder. Yeah. Uh, but if you do manage to take it down, I guess you take the whole botnet down with it, which is probably a good thing. Just taking down botnets is hard, right? Taking down botnets is hard. Taking down the people behind the botnets is harder, yes. but more effective. Um, I was just thinking that this isn't the first time we've seen people use compromised infrastructure for things like this. I mean, we've seen them use it for gateways into exploit kit paths. We've seen them use it for, you know, 
turning a box into a proxy or obviously for DDoS purposes, but you know, actually hosting your site takes a little bit of, of it's sort of, um, what's the word for it? You need, yeah. I I'm think trying not to say certain words, but it, <laughs> it takes a lot of gumption, I'll say that. Yes, yes. Yes, gumption is a nice one. Cool. All right, and then we'll bounce it back to Jim for another interesting vulnerability. Uh, Jim, this one happens to do with antivirus. Take it away. Yeah, this one, actually, uh, I, I first heard about it just a couple hours ago as we were getting ready for the show. This one was uh, reported by Tavis Ormandy, and he's you know one of these guys who we've talked about a number of times on the show in the past. Who, who finds these vulnerabilities and reports them. This one is actually kind of a nasty one in semantic antivirus. Uh, it exists in a, a cr a cross platform in, in their you know Windows, Mac, and Linux versions of their antivirus. It's a buffer overflow issue. Uh, in the way that it handles files that were compressed with ASPAC. And basically what happens is the antivirus will scan a, an attachment to an email or a, a file that you've downloaded or, or something off of a web page. And if it is packed improperly with ASPAC, it will trigger, trigger this buffer overflow at a minimum, it can uh, kill the antivirus. It has been known to cause blue screen of death on Windows systems. It's quite possible that with a little more work, the bad guys could turn this buffer overflow into actual remote code execution. Um, although I see no evidence that anybody is doing that yet. But uh, because of where the uh, filter driver exists in in Windows version, this is actually embedded deep within the kernel. So if they do, you know, manage to get a code execution at that level, it would be game over. This would be a ring zero. So this is a biggie. Uh, if you're running Semantic Antivirus, their live update. Uh, should have provided some workarounds for the problem. Some of it will require an additional patch that hasn't been released yet, but live update should be applying uh, some of the fixes to try to protect you against it right now if you're if you're running the semantic antivirus. So this is kind of a nasty one. Uh, it's one if you're using semantic antivirus, you need to keep on top of of the updates and keep an eye out for this one. All right. Yeah, I, I keep thinking back about a month ago or so, I did a book review of the Antivirus Hackers Handbook, and this is one of the classic cases that, it, they, that the authors presented, is that I think that the article said that it's actually in a parser for an older version of ASPAC, which to me sounds like it's code that hasn't been maintained in a long time. It was written a while ago, it was written for the purpose that it needed to be done, and then I wouldn't say abandoned, but not maintained. And this happens because antivirus has to, has to handle so many different file formats. So while I'm not apologizing for anybody having a bug in their code that causes such a, a serious problem, I do understand why it's there. 
Right. It's actually one of my most favorite kind of bugs, bugs in security software. <laughs> uh, can I say favorite? I guess impressive. I'm, I'm most impressed with these kinds of bugs. Um, and you know, I'm glad that people are kind of conducting this kind of research, making sure those tools are as secure as can be, and finding vulnerabilities is one of those ways. Yep, good points. The important thing is it could be triggered without the user really doing anything if you've got the antivirus set to scan email attachments and that kind of thing. All it would take was you having your email reader open and a new message comes in, the antivirus goes off to check it, and if it's got this corrupted attachment, boom. Yeah, without any user interaction. So anytime the user you wouldn't have to open the email or anything, just you know, having Outlook or your, whatever your email application is running is all that it would take. Yeah, so the user could even be on their very best behavior and they'd still be affected by this. Yep. Yeah. Well, I guess as a reverse engineer, this is just one more reason to hate ASPAC. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know you hated ASPAC. <laughs> I didn't like it. It's okay. pretty annoying to try to reverse, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a pretty big one to reverse. Okay. All right, and Stan, actually we have a, a story from you as well. This one sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, this is something uh, I like uh, to do in my free time is participate in like capture the flag competitions or CTF competitions. And uh, Facebook has just released an open source platform that takes care of a lot of the back end work of trying to set up a CTF. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess they're hoping that you know more and more people can take advantage of participating in, uh, of like setting up CTFs and participating in them by taking up some of that, taking away some of the tedious labor mm -hmm. and setting one up. So the components that they're gonna allow for is the backend, like the game map and the team registration and the scoring. The hard part of creating the challenges uh, still kind of lies with the people who are putting the challenges together, but they have mm -hmm. some sample code and plugins and, and even a few things that you can request from them where they'll give you a few sample challenges. Mm. Now, CTFs, they're fun for people like us, right? It keeps us sharp analytically. It, it helps us to keep our offensive skills up to date so we know how to protect against certain things. Mm -hmm. It's a really good, safe way for people to explore security kind of offensively and def defensively together. Competition, I find, is the best way to bring out that talent. I know you feel the same way. I, I do feel the same way. I've played a couple of CTFs. I can't say I've done incredibly well, but I've done well enough, and I've certainly learned something every time I did it. Yes. So um, I think the last one I participated in, I know you participated in, was the Sands Holiday Hack for this past year, which was a very involved one, I think, this year, right? That was yes. the IoT one. It was uh, very involved, very fun, and I learned so much. You know, the technology is always changing, and the way you have to protect things is always changing. And the way you have to attack things kind of stays the same in principle, right? But the, the mechanics of certain exploits, mm -hmm. they kind of change. So participating in these CTLs is definitely one way to keep your kind of tools sharpened and, and knowing what's out there, um, being able to defend against it. Yeah, well, I certainly hope that people come up with new modules for this game and hopefully over time you'll get something. I keep thinking of like reverse metasploit where instead of coming up with attack tools, you're coming up with Defend, not defendable, but vulnerable systems, and you just drop them in and, and play each game as you can. So, yes, exactly. yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah, and we'll have to have Ed Scotus back on when he when they announce the holiday challenge for this year too. 
I think we should ask him. Absolutely. Yeah, he when uh, last time he was here, he actually talked about all the things they're planning, mm -hmm. and it sounds like the work has already started oh, it, designing it, that competition. It has. He, it's been well underway. His his team works most of the year to set those up, which is why we won't have a threat track capture the flag anytime soon. <laughs> well, with this, the Facebook one, maybe we will. Who knows? Ah, it's still too much work. They'll have like four questions. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to the internet weather for this week. Uh, the top 10 most probe ports for the week. Not too many surprises here. Um, 23 uh, Telnet is still reigning king. Uh, 22 SSH. 80 has bumped up seven places. I would speculate this has something to do with there was a, an SAP bug that was released recently. And that has to do with the invoke servlet. It's not really a new bug, but it's called attention to the fact that this, this existed. I think maybe DHS or US CERT had a bulletin mm -hmm. out about this. So anytime a new bug is, is released or at least brought back into the news, I tend to see a, an uptick in that. So that's what I think this one's about. It could be anything. 53 UDP, again, we usually have reflective um, denial of service attacks using these ports. 1433 is Microsoft SQL Server. 443 SSL, 445 Microsoft file sharing. It's one of those ports in that mix. Uh, 123 UDP is NTP, 3389 RDP, and 25s SMTP. Yes. I'm impressed I got that. Yeah, a lot I think of practice. You, you would win the DEF CON <laughs> port challenge, right? Is that one of the Jeopardy questions, is what yeah. ports are? Yeah, yeah, they definitely ask those. <laughs> All right. So anyway, to take a look at the traffic on port 23 TCP, which is Telnet, like I said, in the last 60 days, we've seen it go up and down a bit. Um, there has been a significant increase in the number of scan flows, that's the number of scans, basically, in the last seven days. Couldn't really attribute it to anything. It doesn't look like there's a corresponding change in the number of scanners or scan source IPs. Uh, it actually looks like it's, there was a decrease at the start of last week and it's slowly working its way back up to about where it was. Uh, this is a graph of, of 60 days worth of activity, by the way. Port 80 TCP is a significant hop up in the number of scanning source IPs. So this is interesting. This is a concerted effort, in my opinion, to try and ramp up. And it looks like, I know Brian likes to talk about the, the eventual slipping down and off, but I think there's maybe a couple different factors in that graph. You see an immediate spike and then a slow tapering, but then a few spikes within that, which means I, I think that's more of more than one group trying to do these, the, the coordinated peaks being one group and then the, the slope up and down being somebody else. That's my take on it, but that's speculation. And a lot of the IP addresses that we're seeing here are Poland, Ukraine, US, and Argentina. What that means, I couldn't speculate. Yeah, but that's a pretty significant jump there. You know, the previous peaks had been up around seven and a half thousand you know, a factor of three jump, and this one's a factor of 10 jump. Absolutely, yeah. Pretty big jump in the number of sources, and we should probably do some more research and see if we can figure out what's going on there. I think you're right. Taking a look at one of our uh, recent old chestnuts is port 53413 UDP, which is that Netis router backdoor we've been talking about probably for a couple of months now. There was actually uh, an increase, a significant increase in the number of scan flows in the last, I would say, week and a half. Uh, you can see from the graph there that that baseline level has significantly curved up and maybe twice within that span with a couple of regular peaks. Which it looks like we've seen those for a while as well. And the Netis router backdoor, again, is the, the one with the UDP backdoor where you simply send them shell commands within the packet and they get executed. So basically remote code execution with a single packet, which, wow. Yeah. Um, so people are definitely taking note about this one because you can get a box fairly quickly and get lots of them. 
also fairly quickly. Most sources probing, we have, again, 23 TCP is at the top. 80 TCP bumped up 14 spots. Port 53413 UDP is still pretty high up. Like I said, that's that Netis router backdoor. 445 has gone down one spot, not a significant change to me. 6881, I believe, is related to BitTorrent in some way, and that seems to have held fairly stable. And an interesting one, port 6379, which I took a closer look at here. Uh, this one has had a significant increase as well. The, the factor of number of source IPs has gone up. It looks like it was somewhere around the, not even the, the power, not even a thousand originally, but it looks like it's jumped up to 27 and a half thousand, it looks like from the graph. And this port has to do with Redis, which is, they, they build it as an in-memory data store. The, the not so accurate but short version is it's sort of like a NoSQL database, uh, but apparently from what I read, versions of Redis were released that didn't have any security by default. So if you hook it up to the internet, you just go ahead and query that database and there may be actually things you can do on the file system. So this is a pretty big hole. I think they've changed, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they've changed the defaults now that it only listens on a local port and you have to go ahead and enable it to go out to the internet, you know, best practices and all that. But there should still be, there's probably still a significant number of servers out there that are configured incorrectly. Uh, the top sources on this scanning uh, are out of China, which I think we've talked about Redis scanning on the show before, and I'm fairly sure it was the same as well. And this is another one of those that there's no good reason why this should be exposed to the Internet. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So that's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Check Channel on YouTube, and we have an audio-only version on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is ATT Business. That's new from maybe a few shows ago, but uh, check us out there. There's a lot of really good content. Same old us and a few more things from the business side. Um, thanks a lot, Jim, for joining us. Thank you, Stan. I'm Matt Kaiser. Uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new show, and until then, keep your network safe. Views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.